I'll be reading from the ESV, and we'll spend a little time thinking about the implications of this. I think it's a great place to step into as we go through Romans. Not like we had a choice because of the way we're doing this, but anyway. He says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, or her obviously, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems the days all alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to him. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the living and the dead. Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, something that we're all too familiar with, and you probably tuned in in some fashion or another to the different celebrations or, or more of the remembrances of, of the tragedy that happened uh, on this, uh, the, that day, 20 years ago, I believe it started about 8.30 or 8.45 in the morning, where certain terrorists obviously flew large airline carriers into the Twin Towers out in New York. As you think about that, it is a tragedy that will probably go down in most of our memories as something we saw on television and we experience. Obviously, the danger and why they have these remembrances is because every generation is bound to lose sight of that, as we do often of a lot of things. What is striking about that is that what I would call, uh, and what we obviously would all call a horrific tragedy and evil, was driven by individuals who had deep personal convictions about what they believed in. They had convictions so deep, and they were very antithetical to us, that so deep that they were willing to sacrifice their lives for their cause, and they didn't care who they hurt in doing so. It is, in our minds, one of sort of those top ten evils that we see in our world, which would include different kinds of wars and tragedies and things that we look through history, and there's a number of them. One of the... Uh, sort of religious, historical uh, tragedies, I guess we would look at, it would be the Crusades, where the churches sort of took up arms and went around trying to destroy those who didn't believe the way they did. While obviously not on the same level, why believe out of 36 years of ministry the things that Romans chapter 14, 1 through 9 talk about has often been the bane of churches all over the world and probably one of the most corrosive, destructive things going on, regardless of what the world does. It is very easy for Christians to look out in the world and see the evil and the hurtfulness that goes on, the persecution of people who have convictions that hate this 
whole philosophical belief system that says Jesus is the only way. Unfortunately, some of this has affected the church so long that there are certain cliches that have popped up over church history. One that uh, I grew up with that you may have heard is, is Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded. And you, you sort of hear that, and, and we sort of shake our head and puzzle at it, and yet for most of us have probably been part of that operation and strategy in our life at some point or another. And you might protest and say, I don't do that, and yet we'll see as we go through the text. Because while the obviously external horror of the, the 9-11 incident doesn't seem to be as obvious, sometimes Christians can master the same thing, where they weaponize their personal convictions and take it out on other believers. They, they, they believe so deeply in their own personal convictions that they believe everybody else should do it exactly the same way they should. And if you don't know what that means, then you obviously haven't been to church very long. Because every church, unfortunately, afflicts this, not because one church is bad or good, but because there's people in it, like you and me, who sometimes get askewed from the things that we ought to and how we ought to live. I, I want to walk you through this this morning in the sense of looking, first of all, about the power of affirming our own personal faith and convictions. And it really begins with what we already did this morning, and that is affirming our personal faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That is one of the most powerful things you will ever discover in life, is when an individual comes to the reality of all that Christ did to die for my personal sin and my trespasses, the brokenness in my life, and the evil that I have spit out on other people, and the collateral damage I've committed, regardless of how severe or bad it is, God says, you know, no one earns their way to heaven. We all have damage and sin, and so he actually opens the door simply through faith to embrace a reality that we could never earn on ourselves. And so the whole idea of certainly Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, who everyone who is going to believe in the credibility of God and exercise faith that Christ died for them. And, it's, that's the, and, and through that faith and believing what Jesus did, they can be accepted by God and welcomed as a, as a family member. But the, you'll notice in verse 17, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There, there's different ways to word that. And it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So once a person comes to Christ by faith, they are to live by faith. This sense of dependence and, and surrender to God and allowing the Spirit of God to be their teacher and lead their life. And so it, it emphasizes that having a personal faith and have deep convictions is absolutely critical for a person who claims to be a believer. But what we need to discover is that the power of both affirming a personal faith also creates problems in the crucible of real life. Because what he's going to introduce to us, as he already has in this book, is that what God has done through the gospel is that he has not only extended that to the Jews, because the early church would have been predominantly Jews, but all of a sudden now God is opening it up to Gentiles. For all intents and purposes, people who are profoundly different and have very different worldviews than the Jews had. 
And so it would have been profoundly difficult for the Jews to start accepting these people in that don't know our traditions and they don't know our worship and they don't know our music that we're supposed to sing. They don't know the regulations on what you're to eat and not supposed to eat and what clothes you're supposed to wear. You guys don't get it, so you've got a lot of education to do. And yet, at times, it wasn't going very well. But what we'll discover from this text as Paul writes to them is that it surfaces something in our mind is that faith translates into values that translates into convictions. That I believe in certain things very strongly. We, we, we may struggle with, do I believe this that I'd be willing to give up my life for it? Some things are like that. If someone threatens your life if you, unless you deny Christ, I think we would all like to say, I'm not going to budge on that one, even if it costs me my life. But sometimes we struggle with the idea of sharing the gospel with people because we're so afraid of what people think. And so our convictions confuse us because in one sense, we'd give up our life. On the other sense, we struggle with giving the hope of the gospel to people that desperately need it. And so we struggle with those. But as we begin to think about it, we need to understand that all of our faith is tied, and we would describe it as biblical convictions. I mean, I have convictions about golf. Love playing golf, unless I'm playing badly, and then it's not so pretty. I love playing golf. You have hobbies that you love to do, and you have convictions about it because you'll spend money and time and resources being committed to that. And some people will spend extraordinary amounts of money on their hobbies, and and so they have a personal conviction and value that likes to embrace that. But what he's talking about here is biblical convictions, and and everybody has some kinds of biblical convictions. The Jews had deep biblical convictions that go all the way back to the Old Testament over generations of being God's people. And so when he's talking about this in this particular context— we sometimes would read this and go, what do you mean? Some eat food, some don't. What do you, I mean, that just sounds like a, a, you know, a health food thing, a diet process. I mean, are they trying to lose weight? Are they trying to just stay healthy? What's the problem? But if you'll remember, and let me give you some illustrations about where this touched in their life. Uh, there are statements here that are powerful. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. One person esteems one day better than the other, yet another esteems days alike. Each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Those who are observers of the day observe it to honor the Lord. The one who eats, eats to honor the Lord. So it's clearly whatever their convictions are, he ties both the person who's weak at faith and the one who has faith, which we might define as stronger faith, as being biblical. These are spiritual. These are aimed at honoring God. But what they're discovering is that they're on opposite sides of the same issue. The food laws here about eating or not eating tie back into the Old Testament. See, remember when God redeemed Israel, he gave laws and precepts and principles that governed every aspect of life. So they had an ethnicity in their relationship with God that covered everything, even eating. Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy 14, God says if you want to be holy and you want to be spiritual, then you need to not eat certain kinds of food because it'll, I'm not going to throw you out of the family of God, but it makes you unclean. And I want you to live distinct lives that are unique and, and in a sense we would put it as being a light to the rest of the nations, that we're not just giving into culture, we're not just being like everyone else. We have a unique God and we're going to live differently. 
And so they were masters of what you, you and I might call legalistic religion. They, they had all the rules down. The, the Pharisees at Jesus' time had rules for everything. In fact, they even added the rules to the rules and the law so that they make sure they didn't break the rules. So if this was God's rule here, they added a couple more rules to make sure you never broke that rule. But if you broke these rules, you were just as in trouble of being unspiritual because it was their rules. Does that make sense? That worked? And, and so what happens in this, in this process is that the rules uh, for the Jews go back generations. This is how we do worship. This is how we dress. This is the right and wrong of eating food. This is morality, and, and all of this is shaped by generations of living this way. So when God opens the door and these Gentiles come in, they go like, you want me to not eat it? Are you kidding? That's the best steak in the city. And so I'm, I'm more than happy to eat that. The other problem, of course, in terms of days would relate a little bit more to the idea of uh, like circumcision. Paul had a horrific time getting the Jews past the issue of circumcision. Every time a Gentile came to faith, got to circumcise them. Gentiles are going, yeah, I don't think so. And Paul says, this is not necessary because you're not accepting the fact they've believed in Jesus, you have to add another right to it in order to be acceptable, to be spiritual, to be accepted. And Paul says, that's not the way it's working anymore because the gospel is, is changes things. Not only in terms of who's allowed to get saved, which means anyone who comes to faith can be saved and be part of God's family, but this messes everything up for the Jews because they don't respect our traditions, they don't respect our habits and our practices and our programs. They don't, they, I don't think we can live with these people. In fact, you'll see it other places. Paul dealt with this in Colossians. Colossians, he says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question to food or drink or with respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath. That's most likely the issue going on with honoring days and some is better, it goes back to the idea the Jews are saying, listen, we keep the Sabbath. You don't keep the Sabbath and there's something wrong with you. We have festival days that are meant to celebrate God's work in our community. You have to celebrate these things. And the Gentiles are going like, why? And they're going, are you kidding? This is what God called us to do. These are our personal, these are our personal and community convictions. You don't do that I don't think we can associate with you. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, churches have done this for years and decades. You come in here, and we have certain ways of doing things, and if you don't do it our way, then we don't want you here. Now, let me pause for a minute. Before I get into the nitty-gritty of this, I want you to know there's nothing wrong with dialoguing about understanding truth. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with having questions and clarifying and exploring truth and being confused and needing clarity and having, being engaged in what is truth. The text is never gonna say that your personal convictions are bad if they're different than someone else's. In fact, I think I've mentioned a number of times that it's easy for people, for Christians to believe in sort of God and everything, but have convictions about nothing. But what he's saying here is that convictions are a critical part of a believer's life, but the danger is we don't know what to do when they conflict with someone else's. 
who is also a believer, another, a child of God. What do I do with this? When we're together as a community, we as leaders and elders try to say, listen, there's certain ways we want to conduct ourselves with one another, so there's certain things that we do. Not everything that we do will mesh with your personal convictions. Not everything we do meshes with even the leaders' all personal convictions, but we agree that when we're together, we're going to do certain things in certain ways so we just don't start a chicken fight. And so Paul, in addressing this, also says, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These things all perish with the using according to human precepts and teaching. But you have indeed, and pardon, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but are worthless when it comes to dealing with the things of the flesh. If you grew up in a legalistic church, they'd have all kinds of rules and regulations. A lot of it relates to morality, what's right and wrong, what's spiritual and what isn't spiritual. And what's happened in that is people have grown up being sort of weaned on rules and regulations rather than saying that the motivation for my life ought to be love for Jesus. What would, what would honor Jesus? But what churches get into is what would honor our history? What would honor our traditions? Now, that gets to be a fine line. But when I read the scriptures, in a sense, there's really only two traditions that are technically given, that's communion and baptism. Now Paul talks to Timothy about preaching the word and I think in the world we live, I think it's important that we preach the word. Nobody's interested in my personal convictions, frankly. What you and I both need is the word. We will form personal convictions based on that and that's important rather than just being hearers of the word and not doers of anything. But the, but the issue becomes that we need to figure it out. Now, Colossians is an example. Let me give you one more in terms of how this works out. 1 Corinthians 8, Paul dealt with the issue of food offered to idols. And we know, in the previous argument, we know there's no such thing as an idol. People will build idols, but we know there's nothing really behind it. And so some people go, well, whatever, if you offered food to sacrifice to idols, I can still eat it because I'm not doing it to worship that, although that's been lots of discussions in churches too. If there's anything that's connected to anything that we wouldn't agree with, then to do it, we're saying, well, we're supporting what's going on in that stuff we don't agree with. Well, that's not always true. And so he says, the danger, though, is that knowledge makes us arrogant. Love edifies if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So the danger is, is that as we gain knowledge and we gain truth, we think we know better than other people. And at times God gives us that wisdom. The danger is when a person goes around thinking they know better than everyone else and if you don't do what I say, then you're stupid. And there's been more of that going on I've seen in 35 years of ministry than all the evil in the world at times. Because you'll run into Christians who think that they're the only ones who have the answer to certain things. This is my conviction. It's biblical. And if you don't do it, then I'm going to question your spirituality. In fact, I might even question your salvation if you don't agree with me because my conviction's based on biblical truth. 
And the Jews could have said exactly the same thing. And what you notice in this particular text is he's very clear saying, however, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association or experiences with idols, eat food as if it's really offered to something behind that idol. And he says, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And so what it tells me in this text is that people's past experiences have a profound effect on how their faith is shaped, good and bad. Now, part of the the struggle in this is, let me give you Jesus' perspective on this specific issue. Mark 7, he said, these people that he has been talking to are without understanding. Do you not see that whoever, whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and then it's expelled? Well, that would seem to make sense. I wish they had thought of that before. But the, the Jews have been taught all through the Old Testament and this is what God told them is there's certain stuff I don't want you to eat. In this text we're told, and I, I suspect the problem here is that the rest of the Jews just didn't get the memo from here. But the idea is, thus he declared all foods clean. So if you want a junk food to your pimples pop, then do it, but it's not a spiritual issue. You might have some serious health issues, but there are Christians who go around and actually question people's spirituality because they don't think they're eating the right food or you're not wearing the right kind of clothes. People do it. I've grown up in it. I need to know what happens. And you may, be at the, you may be the one who's delivered that or you may be the recipient of people who have got in your face because you're not wearing the right kinds of clothes. And so as he, the, the problem of affirming personal faith like this is often, and I'm gonna use the phrase I used before, although it sounds extreme, we weaponize it to attack other believers. I mean, it sounds astounding that believers could take biblical truth, form personal convictions on it, and then weaponize it to beat up or to bully or to condemn other believers. But look, I know I'm right and you're not, and so I'm trying to help you by telling you what you have to do, and if you don't do it, that's not good enough. Now, just so we bring this, in case you have no connection and looking at me going, I've never experienced this in my life. I have no idea what you're talking about. I could list all kinds of things. Let me just, this, this circles around things like worship. I've grown up where churches fight over worship and music constantly. Brad, that's a different kind of issue. Yeah, it always is. But I've seen churches tear themselves apart over things like worship and music. Some people do it over preaching. Uh, when I was in Portland, I was the youth person for four years while I was going to seminary, and when we got to the end of that, the senior pastor had done a few things that probably wouldn't have, and I, I'll clarify that so you don't think it's a big bad thing. He tried to take the church from being purely traditional to totally contemporary in one week. <laughs> I'm not kidding, we moved out the organ, they got rid of all the robes and there was not, they put up a worship band with drums and everything and never said a word to the congregation about anything. We're all sitting there going like, you're really sure you want to do this? Absolutely, we're going to put ourselves on the cutting edge of being, well, we put ourselves on the cutting edge all right. 
I bet you we lost 20 families before we even got through the first song. It was just like, boom. Now, shell-shocking people is, probably has its own demise, aside from the issue, but the point is, is that churches have been fighting over music and worship for generations, because some of it's clearly spiritual, clearly some of it isn't. Now, again, I wanna say, I don't want you to rubber stamp this, there is clearly a need for wisdom and dialogue. There's bad hymns out there, there's bad songs out there, we don't wanna sing them, but, there, but the idea is, is we start fighting over personal preference and convictions. The preaching aspect of it is when this, so that's the background of that, when they, and this is always what happens when people start getting frustrated with pastoral staff and other people, they attack his preaching. So they're going like, well, you know, he's pretty shallow in his preaching. We like yours better. Kind of like, don't go there with me on that. I remember when I was in college, we used to get people into our chapel services. I think I've shared this before, but I'll do it briefly. Some of them were pastors and preachers. Others were missionaries and other people that public speaking wasn't their thing. So if you get someone up there that didn't speak very well and didn't articulate their message very well, even Bible college students would sit around and start making fun of them and mocking them and doing other things and whatever. And when that happened, I just got nuts. I just went, how can we do this? We're supposed to be Christians. This person's doing the best they can to communicate something to us and we're making fun of them. And it was at that time that I made a decision in my heart. I'm never going to offload the burden to anybody else whether I'm listening to God or I'm worshiping properly. It doesn't depend on the people that are up here or who's preaching. If I don't come hungry to listen to Jesus and I'm listening to the Spirit of God, I shouldn't be there. I mean, we try to do everything with excellence because we're trying to serve God and serve the people that we love and care about. But boy, I tell you, there's nothing that'll just destroy people who are trying to serve, that they put their heart into something, the first person comes up to them saying, you shouldn't be doing this because that disobeys God or that dishonors God. And I've seen more pastors and teams and people pouring their heart out to serve others when people walk up and their personal conviction is, look, this stinks because of this and this and this. You don't know what you're doing because of this and this. I know better than you do and you need to do it my way. And so there's lots of things, but listen, it comes to church programming, it revolves around prayer meetings. Of course, in our world, things like COVID and wearing masks and not wearing masks, that's where, that's, there's legitimate issues on both sides of this thing. People have personal convictions about it, but it's really dangerous, and I, I wanna say, I think our body has done a fabulous job not to weaponize their personal convictions. We've talked about it and struggled through it, but I've seen churches literally tear themselves apart over this. Because you have to, and I don't wanna get lost in this issue, but instead of having discussion and figuring out how do we serve one another, people just, we push it in each other's face. So the principle, I believe in what he's saying here, is that you can have one issue, you can have believers who come from very different experiences and backgrounds, who are genuine believers, who have personal convictions that are almost antithetical to one another. 
And the whole point of the text is we need to accept one another in Christ, in love, without being condescending, without despising one another, without judging one another. It's one of the most corrosive, toxic things that could ever go in a church. And so his statement here in verse four was this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Well, I know what's right and they're not doing it right, I'm trying to help them by correcting them, I'm trying to fix them, what do you, what's the problem? And, and I, I will say this, personal convictions for believers will always need to be connected to the inspired scriptures. But we've got to remember that my conviction isn't the same as inspired scripture. It always is grounded and connected to the scriptures and truth, but that doesn't make my convictions inspired scripture. Do you want me to translate this in my colloquial terms? I don't remember God dying and putting you in charge of everyone else's life. Because that's how some Christians act. They have this God complex that they're the only ones who know how to do something and, and my role is to, tell, is to fix everybody and make sure that they do it my way. <laughs> Let me tell you a true illustration I heard on Thursday before I headed south to do some coaching with some churches. My admin had called me from the region and said, uh, hey, I gotta tell you something, I won't tell you who it is, but there was a pastor literally in the last two weeks. Try to figure this one out. He sat down with a couple and I said, do we know for sure this is a Christian couple? You don't usually get non-Christian couples going to pastors unless something's really messed up, so I'm gonna assume this is a Christian couple. And it wouldn't surprise me, but here's, here's what the bottom line was. The husband, was threatening to divorce his wife because she was thinking about getting a vaccine in order to save her job. Figure that one out. Literally, he was threatening to divorce his wife because she was thinking about getting the vaccine in order to save her job. Now, I don't, know, I don't know where you want to land on that one. I've only got four minutes left, so. <laughs> but we get into these things where our personal convictions, we treat like they're inspired scripture and that we have this God complex that I have to fix everyone and therefore I'm going to bully and manipulate and pester and nag people until I get my way. And what's gonna happen is someone's gonna take out a baseball bat and end your personal convictions abruptly. <laughs> and, and, and Paul writes here and he says, listen, we need to accept one another. We just have to live with the reality that sometimes our convictions are gonna be very different over the same issue. And that's not morally right or wrong and it doesn't put us in disfavor with God because he says here, you're not not my master and I'm not your master. We are all answerable to God and the way that we need to live out our life is be fully convinced in our own mind how I'm gonna conduct my life 
without turning into a monster by weaponizing my conviction and inflicting it on everybody else. And I don't care if that's in marriage, I don't care if that's parenting, I don't care, and I'm not saying you don't discipline your kids, that's a whole other issue. But folks, he's saying, listen, I I believe the statement that he's making here is that when you have a personal conviction, you live it to honor the Lord, and you've got to have the flexibility in your head that other people may not do it the way you do it. It's amazing that two or three hours on a Sunday morning could create that kind of internal conflict because people can't say, well, listen, if it's, when we gather, if that's not the way it happens, then I don't want to be part of this. I believe one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity for an individual or a spiritually mature church is where believers accept others who have deeply held convictions that conflict with their own. Without being condescending, without despising the other person, without judging them or questioning their spirituality, without dismissing them as being stupid or idiotic, And so what flows out of there is I'm going to live my life according to my personal convictions, but I am not going to corner other people with my personal convictions. I'm going to respect theirs. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to be faithful to what I believe. But I'm not going to weaponize my personal faith to take it out on other believers. I want to say it again. I have talk to probably over a hundred churches several times a year. And some churches handle it really well. I think our church does a remarkable job of getting past the outward external things and dealing with people as children of God or people who need to know the hope of the gospel. I think we've done remarkably well even though we've had some struggle trying to figure it out, but done amazing in trying to respect one another's personal convictions without tearing each other apart. And believe me, I talk to enough churches to know that there are some churches that have been absolutely brutalized because of that kind of thing. Are we supposed to have convictions? Absolutely. Can we still love one another even though some of our convictions are completely polarized? Absolutely. And so I want to invite you as you think about this is how do I keep encouraging and loving the people and making sure that I accept the people around me even though they may think very differently about some things in life? And I believe that the gospel would say is that it's quite all right and not a sign of weakness if I surrender some of my personal preferences in order to minister and show love to other people because the danger with knowledge is that it makes us arrogant and love is what edifies. We are doing great. I think we are in a fantastic position to let our light shine before our world that we live in so that they won't be distracted by the clutter of conflict, but they'll see the gospel of Jesus and the hope that God gives in eternal life. Love one another deeply. 
respect the differences that my personal convictions may not line up with someone else's, and let's go save a world. Pray with me.